My name is Sharzad Kiade. I'm a Gemini pescatarian, a mom of two wild little boys. I'm Susan Yara. I'm a mom of two also. This morning, I went to the bathroom alone. I woke up at five, put my boob in her mouth, and then she took a dump. Because that's what she uses me for. <laughs> that's what you're going to hear a lot of our stories and experiences in our crazy journeys to motherhood. It's fam for all moms, not for all dads, not fathers and moms, for all moms. It's going to be a good old time. You guys are going to want to stick around. Promise. So subscribe. Hello, Tifa Football Podcast. I'm Joe. This is Alex. Hello. And we are here today to talk about Arsenal Football Club. It's going to be very exciting. We're going to cover a few topics. Arsenal's defence. That covers most of the topics. That's a little joke there because uh, they've had struggles, haven't they? Uh, but we're also going to talk about Unai Emery's tactical philosophy. Uh, we're going to talk about Aaron Ramsey, because that's an unusual situation. Throw in a little bit of Mesut Ozil into there. And maybe even we could shed some speculation on... Uh, sorry, we can shed some light on speculation. We can't shed any light, but we can discuss speculation. I've really made a, a mouthful of that, haven't I? Uh, and James Rodriguez which is, I suppose, potentially a possibility, unlikely to be for January, but maybe for the summer. Um, so, Alex, let's. we watched the, uh, the Manchester United-Arsenal game this morning, FA Cup, 3-1 loss at the Emirates, so we can talk a little bit, a little bit about that game. Let's get on to that after this initial question. Could you possibly explain to me, in the broad strokes of Unai Emery's tactical philosophy? Um, yeah. It, so it's it's a bit tricky because he had the the PSG period where, and we did a video on this, um, and the tactical philosophy there was basically have a high defensive line, which is something that's fairly consistent for him, as is a certain form of pressing, particularly pressing that encourages uh, the opposition to play the ball out wide. At PSG, though, he ha- was blessed with a front three of staggering talent so mm-hmm. he basically could afford to to kind of compress the space and and try and keep the defense and the attack fairly close together until there was an opportunity <clears throat> to drive forwards in which case the attackers then had a lot of space to run into and because they were good at dribbling and quick and very very good at football that kind of worked uh, at Sevilla he was more structured and part of this was to, uh, like I say, to, to try and get the opposition to, to play the ball out into the wide space and look to press and win the ball back. Um, he likes a kind of fairly structured build-up before shifting it out wide and to try and create these little overloads between overlapping fullbacks, wingers, and maybe a central midfielder pushing out. Mm-hmm. Um, so he tended to use the kind of four-two-three-one that we've recently seen at Arsenal. So it seems like he's kind of going back to how he often played at Sevilla with Arsenal now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not necessarily that easy to say, you know, his tactical philosophy is X because there have been periods of adaptation. Um, <clears throat> well, when we talk about uh, Premier League managers, certainly of the top six, there's the you know there's Pep Guardiola, Maurizio Pochettino, Jurgen Klopp, who all seem to have fairly clear tactical identities and are fairly consistent with how they set their teams out. Does Emery differ from those sorts of trends? Does he? I mean, sometimes the way that we talk about it is in tactical schools, almost of uh, particular people of influence. So, for example, Pep Guardiola seems to be influenced a lot by Marcelo Bielsa, as an example. How does Emery differ from the other? 
modern managers in that top six? Um, I think there are aspects of the sort of possessional style of play. So the the creation of over, when we say overloads, what we mean is is more people in an area of the pitch than the opposition have. Two on one, three on two. Basically, yes. So if a fullback pushes up high, crosses over with a winger who's against one fullback, as often it was yep. uh, Arsenal versus Manchester United on Friday. That is an overload. That's an overload. And that is an overload in the wide space. Mm-hmm. Um, what you would then see, and again, if we refer to the, the Arsenal Man U game, then Aaron Ramsey would push across from the 10 position. That would mean that if uh, a Man United wide player or central midfielder had moved across to assist the fullback... Ramsey adding himself to that mix, maybe in the half space, maybe in the wide space, would again create the overload because then it would be three on two. And beyond making it easier to <clears throat> beyond making it easier to get around the opposition player, Ashley Young in this case, let's say, yeah, what's the benefit? Does it does it make space in the middle? Does it drag people out of position? Well, it's one of those two things. So if it, um, if you're creating an overload, then the opposition can do one of two things. They can either react to that. In which case, as you say, it pulls a player out of position. That may be the centre-back that is closest to that wide channel. It may be a midfielder who would ordinarily be screening in front of the back four, in which case you should then create either a pocket of space in front of the back four or a channel uh, where that centre-back's drawn out of position. So for a cutback or a cross. Exactly, which is what Arsenal (laughs) are seeking to do, by and large. Mm -hmm. If the opposition don't react to that then you have a man advantage and you should be able to either create space for a good cross or beat the fullback mm-hmm. on the overlap and Cause get a cross back in. Yeah. yeah. So it should it should achieve one of those two things. Okay. Um I think in terms of, you know, Emery is well, he has a reputation for being quite an analytical coach in terms of studying the opposition. This is a very kind of pep thing to do as well. You know, uh, yeah, I tell you, I'm gonna, some people get very frustrated. With, it's people get very frustrated with us for uh, saying, and I'm not saying this is wrong, but for pointing out good things that managers do and then saying oh, it's a bit like Pep Guardiola. I can't remember what video it was, but we made a video recently uh, in which we described uh, the good traits of a particular manager as like Pep Guardiola. Yeah. Um, Can I just interject here to say it's a good example to give some context, to give people an idea or a basis to understand why we're saying that. Why we're saying that. Rather than, we're not saying that Pep Guardiola invented scouting. No, we're not saying that. But I think of a lot of modern managers... um, Particularly, I mean, like Mourinho would do this as well. Yeah. yeah. But the the sense of opposition analysis being the foundation of coming up with stratagems that will allow you to defeat the opposition and a manager themselves doing that and being responsible for that thought process is something that if you read about Guardiola is consistently a feature of what he's done throughout his career. And you say manager themselves because often the setup at a club will be that there'll be various coaches who are responsible for scouting the opposition in the next game who then maybe or, work directly with the players yeah, or, or the scouts. Yes, so exactly. it might not might not come through the manager at all. No. I mean, and for example, in, in his latter years under Alex Ferguson, it's more likely that that stuff was done by 
other coaches or scouts, right? Quite possibly, yes. And uh, I mean, I think you would still get... So that's the distinction you're making? So, and and the, this, you know, I think this is probably something that, that a lot of coaches have picked up from Bielsa, because Bielsa is famously, like, retentive about building up this enormous video library of of opposition or well any team because he doesn't know who's necessarily going to be managing but he has this his favorite spy the canon 7d yeah he has this huge library of footage um all framed by foliage and part of that is because obviously the more football you watch the more other managers you watch the more likely you are to to pick up ideas or or to have things that that strike you oh we could try and do this or look how they're using this player but also the idea of devising particular approaches based on who the opposition are, rather than going out and sort of saying, okay, well, by and large, we're going to play a particular kind of thing. Now, we've noticed that the opposition right back is super one-footed. So let's try and pass it into the channel between him and the centre-back where we can, because he's going to struggle with that. Okay, that's fairly straightforward. What we're talking about here is kind of really in-depth analysis of how an opposition regularly plays certain features that come up and then kind of tweaking your lineup, your strategy, your approach mm-hmm. to exploit those problems. Um, or not problems, but opportunities, shall we say. And I think that's something that some managers spend an awful lot of time doing, whereas other managers maybe take a report from their head of opposition scouting and it says you know like they're not very good at set pieces or and obviously this is being very simplistic but different managers get into it to different degrees and I think Emery is one of those who certainly by reputation does that quite a lot mm-hmm. now there is an interesting point there which is which was made in a, a little blog piece by somebody on Twitter Desi Guna I don't know who Desi Guna is in real life but um the point he was making was that Emery arrived with this reputation for doing this, but actually there have been a lot of in-game substitutions this season, some as early as half-time. That would tend to indicate that if he is doing that still, he's not doing it particularly well, because otherwise he wouldn't have to be making all of these substitutions. So right. that's less a <laughs> tactical philosophy and more of a kind of overall approach to stuff. But it, it may be that that part of their issue is that he's not doing that as much. He's not doing it as well. It, there is too much flux around what the other teams are doing for him to be able to get a good handle on it. Mm. I don't know, but that does seem to be an area where they're going wrong. Okay. Well, it's, it, there's been an interesting development with Arsenal over the course of the season so far. As we know, uh, their first opening uh, two Premier League games were Manchester City and Chelsea, both of which they watched at lost. Incidentally, I think I was reading earlier that Arsenal are without a win in the league uh, away against big six teams in 20 games, which is uh, quite a trend. I don't know how that compares to the other teams, but I imagine given that Arsenal are losing all of them, uh, that means that some of the others are winning. <laughs> um, but after that initial uh, st- first first two game struggle, they won eleven in the row, and uh, and they they went unbeaten for eighteen games. So there was definitely a lot of positivity around Emery earlier in the season. Some of which now seems to be fading. So I want to ask how his the tactical philosophy or the ideas that we've just discussed apply to Friday's game, because one of the things that I think was a um, <coughs> a criticism uh, of Arsenal in that game is that. 
well, two, a two, two-fold thing, I suppose. One, that Manchester United's tactical game plan was pretty much identical to how, what it was against Spurs, albeit with some personnel changes, right? The other is that we talk about um, Emery being good at making in-game changes, half-time substitutions, shifting things around. That didn't really happen that much in this game. Of course, there were injuries which took up substitutes, yeah. so that it's difficult to you know really lay into that criticism. But it was clear from the beginning that Arsenal pushing their fullbacks very high up, both at the same time, was creating problems and did did concede goals. And that created problems for Arsenal. You yes, mean. Yeah. yeah, and that did. Um, it felt that didn't like really that, change. No, when we watched the Spurs game a couple of weeks ago against Man United, they didn't win either, but they completely dominated that second half because Pochettino at halftime changed the system, made sure one of the fullbacks was staying back at all times, and just completely nullified Arsenal. Um, United scored a goal in this game late, as late as in you know what, eighty-five minutes or something um, through the same through the same process that they scored the first goal, and you you, you just you have to wonder what Emery's thinking when that happens. I mean, with Manchester United, we sort of celebrate the the ruthlessness of it and say, well, it's kind of ballsy in a way. They they know that they're going to be leaving Ashley Young and Luke Shaw uh, at a disadvantage at fullback. But they also know that by leaving their forwards wide, um, they're going to create problems, and that's you know it's quite a risky approach. Is it unfair to say that Arsenal could Emery have been thinking the same sort of thing? You know, I know it's going to be risky, but we're going to have two and one in the wide areas, and yeah, I think that will probably be part of it. Um, I mean, Arsenal, Arsenal looked very much to. <laughs> believe that on the count kind of on the counter although they were at home so I mean they shouldn't have only been looking to counter but they also had more ball possession made far more and passes. made far more passes yeah although a lot of those passes were you know you you get those phases of play that were out in the wide space where they they were looking to maneuver that overload into a break but it came back inside and there would be a triangle of passes kind of four, five, six passes and, mm. and nothing would happen and it yeah. became very, very static. So I think Arsenal realised that attacking at pace, presumably because, you know, ideally a United attack had just broken down and, and there was a greater degree of pace, particularly for Aubameyang on the right-hand side, but also Wobi to, to attack into was probably their best opportunity. And so Arsenal were kind of looking to uh, exploit... The, the space and United by having a, a midfield three but also with you know Sanchez and Lukaku spread quite wide there there should have been a significant amount of space for Arsenal particularly in the kind of middle third of the pitch mm. to run at before they got to the United fullbacks so I think it's probably reasonable to suggest that Emery was kind of thinking well this should work at some point you know we are getting possession in those dangerous areas we are it was one of those things where you kind of felt like and you saw it for the the goal that was scored when when Ramsey made that incisive run Mm -hmm. around the outside beat a couple of players dribbling back in and then crossed it that was an example of a of a goal that Arsenal will be intending to try and score as opposed to a sort of something that happens randomly during a game right I would suggest so because a lot of those kind of patterns of movement were were repeated or you could see that they were attempting to repeat them throughout that game. Mm-hmm. It's just that a lot of times 
either Ramsey's run was ignored or there wasn't sufficient dynamism coming from another of those players. Like you, you, can, you can create an overload, but if you've got three players in a triangle and they're faced off by two players, as long as those two players are able to guard that space and there's no, there's no forward momentum coming from that overload, you can let that little triangle pass amongst itself mm. out next to the touchline. It's mm. not actually going to do anything. What you need is to create the overload with forward momentum so that you're looking to beat the man and go round and then cross it rather than just have some sort of sterile... Pos- this is... Uh, we talked before, we did a video before about uh, Atletico Madrid and how they defend and, and they retranch with their two banks of four. They stay very, very narrow. The whole point of Atletico Madrid's defensive philosophy is you can have the ball if it's not in an area that's threatening to us. We don't care. Pass it around as much as you like. Mm-hmm. They know that they've got two really chunky centre-halves who will likely be able to repel most crosses. They've got a very good goalkeeper who can come and claim stuff. So those little overloads and passing triangles and stuff that happen in they don't matter. wide spaces, they don't matter. They mm-hmm. don't matter at all. And that, that was what Arsenal was lacking a mm-hmm. lot of. They would have the dynamism if they were breaking, but then there wouldn't be the support runners. Or they'd have the overloads, but there was very infrequently someone getting beyond that and, yeah. and being able to play a killer pass afterwards. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about Arsenal's defence then. Um, because in theory, it's not so dissimilar uh, to Atletico Madrid with the idea you were discussing there with... Uh, are they, you know, they, this isn't the same for Madrid, but the idea of uh, keeping the, the play narrow... Uh, having keeping it in a sort of in a closed area, so trying to make the pitch smaller by the defence being narrower, higher up the pitch, closing down any sort of space in the middle. And you, we've seen for, from Arsenal this season, and indeed in this game as well, um, Arsenal's back line is sometimes as high as as uh, the halfway line. Mm. You know, even even when they're not necessarily in possession or just when they just lost it, which is interesting because we know that Arsenal's. Um, some of Arsenal centre backs, at least maybe not Koscielny included, aren't um, aren't the fastest. No, let's say um, we've seen plenty of examples um, this season of how easy it has appeared at times for opposition teams to play the ball over the top of that back line and for players to run in behind. We know that's um, that's a danger of, of having a system like that with a high line. But as you described there with Madrid keeping the, the back four more narrow, trying to stay closer to the midfield line so that it's hard to play balls in between that. However, the difference was in the game against Manchester United, Torreira and Xhaka would often push up quite high. And so even when Arsenal's back line was at, at the centre circle, there's still quite a lot of space in between them and mm. an awful lot of spa- and the midfield and an awful lot of space behind them. So, Well, Xhaka was dropping off to, to play passes from between the centre backs sometimes mm, but not but interestingly not defending from that position not an enormous amount which no. given that United's forward players were so wide mm. and that was causing you know issues for the centre backs yeah why he didn't drop into the middle and push them out further you made the point that they've played this season with a back three at times at times yeah and if yeah. if if it was a possibility that Man United were going to try and pull the same trick they did at Spurs here which it was obvious from the first five minutes of the game they were going to why why wouldn't they if not start with a back three if Emery is famed for his analytic scouting if not that then why wouldn't they shift to a back three at some point yeah I don't know 
it, it, it's it, confusing. To right? me, it just seems like a mistake, right? Personally, I, I and, and like I'm not, <clears throat> you know, I, I sometimes worry that you know, we'll we'll sit here and pontificate about what <clears throat> professional managers who've won competitions have done yeah. and say, well, that's erroneous. We but must be missing something. You would think perhaps, and and maybe you know, it's to do with injury issues as well. But well, also that you said you said it, it, at times it was working. Emery might be sitting on the bench, frustrated, thinking, "Well, I've done the right thing. Yeah, we've we've scored a goal in exactly the way we were supposed to. Yeah. It is kind of working. But then we're just not winning the game. Sure, but you've got you know that football games consist of attack and defence, don't they? As well as the transitions between those things. So if your attacking formation is working well, but in order to do that, mm. which for Arsenal in this instance particularly required the fullbacks, especially um Kalasinac on the left hand side pushing up super high. Yeah. Then not the best at getting back either, we must well, say. No, and, and this is your a point, lot of jogging. Your point about um about Arsenal's general defensive shape, it makes a lot of sense. Like th- their centre halves centre backs are not fast. In Petacek They've got a goalkeeper who is not very good at coming out. And is also not fast. Right. They've got fullbacks who commit... And, and Ashley Maitland-Niles, to be fair to him, isn't even really a fullback. Um, they were committing extremely high because they needed to in the offensive phase, but then weren't didn't really seem to be making a huge amount of effort to get back. And Maitland-Niles well, look, it's, it's a lot of work as well, right? Right, it you know it's physically taxing, mm-hmm. but Maitland Niles particularly seemed to be drifting uh, centrally quite a lot when the ball was on the left hand side, mm-hmm. which makes sense. But then not recovering his position out wide nearly as quickly as he ought to have done. Yeah, there were a number of times, particularly where Koscielny was having to go basically into a left fullback position to tackle Lukaku. Yeah, again leaving a massive bloody gap in the middle for Jesse Lingard to exploit right and Xhaka wasn't tracking back as well as he ought there although Xhaka as we've talked about before isn't naturally a defensive midfielder no but do you need to be naturally a defensive midfielder to know that if a player that you're supposed to be marking or a player that is free runs back and is going to score a goal obviously that getting back might not be the worst thing I mean it it, sure but how with counter-attacking football I find it frustrating particularly Particularly because if there, if there appears to be more intent to run from their attacking team than there does from a defensive team, then they, they just deserve a goal. I mean, the the, the Jesse Lingard goal... They want for, it more. They, well, <laughs> I'm trying to get around saying that. But with the Jesse Lingard yeah. goal, for example, we, it was very, very simple. Luke Shaw picks up the ball in his own half. Instead of kicking it out, he, he sort of tricks... Part, I can't remember who was marking him at the point. But he does a little trick and then runs about 30 yards, 35 mm. yards... And basically isn't challenged for the ball. Like, there's a little bit of pressure, but not really any. Yeah. And he's in the middle of the pitch, has all this time in the world to make the perfect pass to Lukaku, who incidentally is on the line, ready to run for 30 seconds, and no one's, no one's tracking it, no yeah. one's making it. The worst of all, by the end of the move, all Lukaku's got to do is run down and cut it back. And Jesse Lingard, apparently, although starting behind... Has has managed to run quicker and get into a position and have enough time to touch it first and then shoot. I mean, in the box and against Arsenal at the Emirates, that's right. just not good enough, right? No. I mean, whatever whatever way we look at it tactically, that's just not good enough. But but this. So the, and the other thing that I would add to that description, which is accurate, <laughs> is that Arsenal's centre backs were backpedalling 
but backpedaled too far. It's far too because they're panicking, right? right? So they just run. They just they run to the goal line if they if they could. And it does it does shock me about defenders sometimes <clears throat> when you you can watch things and I'm sh- look I'm sure in real time it's really fucking hard. Yeah, of I'm course. Not, I'm not saying for a second that it's not. Yeah, I can't play football. That well, sure. So, I, like, it's not like I'm saying oh, I could do this. And but look, centre back two's got Sanchez running in behind him. Right, it's, it's not really their fault. Having said that, the two things that you look for, and and when I used to play in goal, this was what I was always wanting: was are your centre backs looking around to see where opposition players are? And the yeah. number of times you look at teams, top level defenders who don't seem to notice a guy yeah. that is two metres to their right, a little bit over their shoulder. And you're thinking, if you just looked to one side, you would see Well, him. this is why I don't... I mean, I, think, also, I think it was... You don't, you don't have goalkeepers mm. or some goalkeepers just really commanding <clears throat> what's going on and yeah. shouting, you, you know, right yeah, shoulder, yeah. drop off, drop yeah. off. Like, Well, I mean, it, I, I can't remember if, if this was before or after Socrates went on. It was either Socrates or, or Mustafi. I think it was Socrates. I, I don't really blame him. I mean, he backpedaled a bit too far, but that's because Sanchez was running in from behind him. He was looking around and he saw him. but And presumably he's thinking, right, well, one of my midfielders is going to pick up Jesse Lingard. Mm. Someone's going to, you know, given that they were already behind, <laughs> someone's going to have managed to get back here quickly enough. And I always think when I see a goal, I mean, it makes for fun, exciting football, but I always think if if you were alert to the, the, the possibility, you know, if you'd watched... Any game of under Solskjaer, with particularly the game against Spurs, uh, Jesse Lingard did exactly the same thing in this game as he did there. Yep. And the threat is always coming later. It's always slightly deeper in between the lines, running onto balls from the box. If it's not him, it's Pogba. And the threat was always going to be on the outside of the box. So the idea that that no one thought to no. run harder. I don't know. I, 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 I don't want to get into the thing about running harder. They don't want no, it more. No, but, but it just it does just seem like it's it was, it's a combination yeah. of things. And 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 I think it is fair to say, having watched that game as we did before recording this, yeah, that Arsenal's fullbacks and at least one of their central midfielders was not making sufficient effort to to recover a defensive position. Mm. And whether whether that's but, whether that's sufficient effort or whether that is that they are not alert to the danger. Maitland-Niles, for example, we say that he doesn't recover his right-back position enough. It's easy for us to say that retrospectively. Yeah. Is it that he's not trying? It's unlikely that it's that. Is it that he doesn't know that he needs to? Is it not more likely that th- it's that I in the moment? I think with Maitland-Niles, it's more likely to be that he doesn't know that he needs to. Yeah, that's, Granit that's Xhaka, fine. I, 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 I just don't afford the same... I think the issue as well is is what does that player consider to be their priority? Yeah. Now, going to the, the video that we're going to release this week on Fernandinho. How do you replace Fernandinho? And we looked and we discussed this briefly last time. If you have a player who's good at lots of different things, then you're saying, you know, if you want to replace that player, which aspect of their goodness are you seeking to replace? Because you probably can't get someone who can do everything. Similarly, when you have a player on the pitch who has defensive and offensive responsibilities, there is likely to be a, a balance in favour of one of those two things. Yeah. So if if you've said to Xhaka beforehand, right, You've got Torreira alongside you, right? Torreira's job is to shuttle around, snuff out danger, intercept passes, be a short option out of cover shadow to keep recycling possession, but basically be tidy and defensive. Mm -hmm. 
if you're Xhaka, you're then going into that game thinking, right, he's going to do that mostly. Mm-hmm. My job is predominantly to be in a position to receive the ball once we win it back <clears throat> and to make those long passes out wide to try and get the attack started that way. Yeah. If you're the fullbacks, part of what you're thinking is we know that United, maybe they did know United would only leave their fullbacks back, that the, mm-hmm. the wide players wouldn't be doing that much. So they're thinking, right, I'm just going to leave Lukaku because I know that my job is to get forwards to work with Iwobi, this is on the left-hand side, to create an overload, get the ball in, we've got good strikers, we'll score goals. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there's always going to be a degree to which they should and will clearly be aware of all of these different things. But how they process that in particular game circumstances and think, ah, shit, right, I've got to forget being the available out ball when this attack breaks down because mm. it isn't necessarily going to break down. I need to shift ass back. Yep. Then uh, we don't know because we're not in their heads. We don't know. There's so much we don't know. I was going to ask you more about uh, Torreira. I don't. I fear we don't have time. We have made a video about Lucas Torreira, so if anyone is more interested in, in our opinions regarding him, uh, you go go find it there. Uh, let's move on instead to talk about Aaron Ramsey. Um, and it's worth pointing out as well, it, it, while still considering the Arsenal Man United game, that it wasn't like Arsenal were really bad in the game. It wasn't; no. they weren't particularly bad. Um, and I did. I watched. Um, I watched uh, uh, James McNicholas Gunner blogs uh, on the ball on the whistle. I think it's called. Uh, he does a sort of series of vlogs after games. Goes to all the Arsenal games and talks about them afterwards. And he made the point, which I found interesting. That their performance wasn't particularly different from their performance against Chelsea when they won two yeah. nil. It, it wasn't that Arsenal were terrible. And speaking of uh, what Arsenal did well, Aaron Ramsey was one of the better players in the game for sure. And it makes it all the more confusing uh, to us, at least, and I think to many other people, that he appears to be leaving to Juventus in the summer to earn lots and lots of money and continue playing well. Um, would you be able to sort of? Talk me through your understanding of the situation because I don't know why it's happening. My understanding of the situation is is purely predicated on the assumption that Arsenal have overcommitted their wage budget to have certain players. Tell me about it. Signed to long term deals, particularly Özil. Should never have bought that expensive lamp. Right, mm. and what? I was just uh, I was talking about overcommitting my own wage budget. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that there therefore, I'm guessing, just wasn't as much money available as Aaron Ramsey wanted. Right. I don't know. But letting Ramsey go under these circumstances seems really fucking dumb. Mm. And that's pretty much what I have to say on that. Mm. I mean, and there was there's the situation above the players... Uh, as well, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, well, this is this is all which, quite confusing. We should it? point out, I mean, we don't have any inside sources here. All oh, we God know no. is, is what we're reading. Yeah. You know, it's probably not that dissimilar to what people who've read about it already know. Yeah. There may be some listeners who aren't aware that there's been some conflict, uh, in, uh, well, in the, in the, with the backroom staff. Reported conflict, we should say. Reported conflict. Um, Alleged conflict. Sure. So Rafa Honigstein did a piece in ESPN recently. It were him that reported it. It were him. Um so Sven Mislantat, who I think it might was, have been someone else. No, it was him. I just was it his exclusive? 
Did well, he get the info? I mean, he reported it in ESPN. He wrote about it. He wrote about it. Yes. I, I, I'm not saying that he wrote just, it suddenly exclusively. I what if someone else did it and then everyone well, else That's not the one it. I read. That's I not don't the one really you care. Read. But it could have been anyone else. Yeah. I literally, should never have bought that lamp. anyone mm. could have bought that lamp. Go on. Uh, so Sven Mislintat was brought over from Borussia Dortmund. He's the guy who found Aubameyang. He found Shinji Kakawa. You know, he kind of drove Dortmund's very impressive recruitment policy based on analytics. Um, he brought used... Torreira in to Arsenal. He did, and Guendouzi. Um, uh, the use of analytics paired with kind of more old-fashioned visual scouting. Mm. Ever look. He's good, yeah. right? He's good at his job. And he was brought Reportedly. in by Gazidas, who left to go to AC Milan in September. And that has created a power struggle between Raul Say- Salieni. We don't know Sayeni. how to pronounce his name. Salieni? I can't remember. I, yeah, we, we were thrown by the two L's in the Catalan. So he, he, he used to work for Barcelona. He yeah. was the head of football relations at Arsenal. He's now the head of football so Mislintat was having to report into him and Honigstein's basic point is that this Raul guy is much more kind of old school contacts book. You know, we'll, we'll sign guys that we know. Mislintat is all about finding, you know, the undiscovered gems in League Two and bringing yeah. them on and, and that there was a, a falling out here. But because of the hierarchy at the club, Mislintat was always going to lose out. Right. And... Apparently, Mislintat was in favour of retaining Ramsey and otherwise within the club it was felt that this was less required. But it's likely because, because, of, yeah, it's because of money, right? It seems to be. These things probably boil down to that. Yes. And, I, and I do wonder, um, for Arsenal supporters, you know, listening to this, watching the football, watching this unfold... Do you imagine that some of them might be thinking, would if Mesut Özil isn't really featuring in the way that the club might have imagined he would when they paid him all of that money to join yeah. them, that if they need to free up some wage money, could be a good option there? Is the case that no one wants to buy him? I, I mean, I think the case is probably that there are only about five or six clubs in the world that could reasonably be expected to afford him. Mm-hmm. And uh, United would be one of them. Yeah, that's obviously not going to happen. PSG would be one of them. Probably the two big Spanish clubs, and maybe a Bayern Munich. But it, not Juventus. Would they not want him instead of Ramsey? Uh, if I were Juventus, no, no, personally. I mean, I think. Well, I tell, I tell I you what. Let me ask two, you. There's two points to just quickly. There's two points to make about this. Firstly. Uh, when Emery got the Arsenal job, part of that was was on the basis that he had very, very thoroughly looked at Arsenal's squad and was able to appreciate what he saw as their strengths and their weaknesses. And mm. it's interesting to think, did he just sort of basically say that Arsenal's squad was good and didn't need much in the way of assistance other than a defensive midfielder? in order to get the job because there seem to be major problems. Like if I were him, I would have come in and gone, the defence needs a complete overhaul. You know, we need to work out what's going on with these guys. Also, secondly, and in relation to that, particularly with Ozil, you've got a player there who is kind of Arsenal's marquee player, right? You know, was the record signing for ages, massive wage bill, 
if I were Arsenal employing a new manager, <laughs> I would be saying to that new manager, we will expect you to, to build make your work. team around Ozil. Make it work, Unai. Because Ozil, there's no doubt at all that Ozil is a fantastic player. Mm-hmm. He's of not, course. He's not working out under Emery. Well, let me interject it because I have questions from listeners oh, okay. regarding Mesut Ozil. I thought well, now would be a good time. Uh, there's two here. Uh, Lev Gorecki asks, well, says, all my peers are in agreement that they hate Mesut Ozil because of the reasons outlined by the media. He, I mean, he hasn't put it in quotes. I said it like that. Brackets, inconsistency, lazy, etc. Uh, but I believe he's truly a great player and the kind of player from a, a different generation uh, who is massively underappreciated. What are your guys' take on it? Secondly, Eduardo says, and this is all in capital letters, by the way. Always what, a good sign. Why do they choose... To not play Ozil in certain games when he is by far the most creative player on the field and would even go so far as to say in the Prem. Um, okay, so... I, don't I understand think... the, the different generation things. I mean, presumably uh, presumably, Lev is, is kind of alluring to the idea that he... Alluding He's... to the idea that he was like a kind of a, a luxury 10. Yeah. A, a Rooney of 2008 sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and he ain't going to do no running. Right. Maybe not. I mean, I mean, I think I think it's really difficult to to know. Emery's not going to build a team around him. No, I mean everyone knew that, right? Yes. I can't imagine that Arsenal thought he would. But that's that's why I find that odd, in a sense that if mm. you know you do, you don't want. I think it's very difficult if you're a manager to feel that those sorts of things are in place. And that you have to accede to them and say, yeah, yeah. sure, okay, I'm going to do this before you take the job. Having said that, you know, this is a player who has won lots of stuff, who is a really talented, creative player. It, it doesn't make sense to come in thinking, ah, he's just not my kind of guy, I'm not going to use him. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure there's a middle ground there, which is what actually happened, and it's not worked out. But... um is he a luxury player? Well, maybe to a degree, but then, you know, there are ways around that. There are ways of building the rest of that team so that it doesn't matter that you've got a player who doesn't do as much running. Um, is he from a different era in that respect? I mean, like, you, I, I guess it's that kind of sense of, of a, a creative 10 who, you know... It, that, that pressing particularly now requires a degree of defensive commitment from everybody. And you look at Liverpool's attacking players and mm. they're busting a bullock trying to close the ball down. And... Well, well, here, Sayi says, how do you incorporate Ozil into the system? Is is a Xhaka expendable? Do Arsenal need another defensive midfielder? Does Emery need a change of tactics? Um, or I... does Emery just not need to include Ozil? I mean, presumably at the moment... I don't, I don't know. I don't know what Arsenal fans are thinking. Yeah. But were it me, I would be thinking Ozil doesn't need to be in this system. Ozil doesn't need to be at the club. That's what I would be thinking. Right. And and I would be thinking if the difference between Ramsey staying or going is we cut Ozil loose, then I would be looking at keeping Ramsey. If you go back to that game against United that we watched, where were the issues? The issues were partly defensive, and I know we're coming on to that in a minute, but... Um, they were getting possession out wide. What was missing was the late run that would put a player beyond the defensive line or cutting through into a position that was dangerous, you know, sort of on the edge of the box. And it was Ramsey 
generally speaking, who supplied those runs when they did come. Ozil isn't that kind of player. Yeah. You know, Ozil's very, very good at doing the 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 cute little through pass or switching the play intelligently. But again, Xhaka was switching the play. That was fine. The through pass isn't really effective if the run isn't coming either. Yeah. And and who's he looking to pass that to? You know, in an ideal world, he'd probably be looking to pass it to a wing back who's running round, but then who's getting into the centre. Arsenal's issue seemed to be, like I say, a lack of incision. And Ozil isn't going to create that incision. He's going to make passes that allow that incision to thrive if it's there because someone's running onto that pass. But if no one's running onto that pass... Well, let's talk about James Rodriguez then. And, and I don't know how legitimate these uh, rumours were. As I, I read a, a, an article on The Independent earlier. The Independent appears to think that Bayern would be open to the idea of, of Hammers going. Although, it's, look, it's, we're recording this on the, the, the 28th, um, Monday. By Friday, the transfer window is closed. I, all of the rumours have gone as well. So I think it's very unlikely, but it's worth discussing Rodriguez anyway, not so much as a will he, won't he come to Arsenal, but just as a kind of comparison to Mesut Ozil. Because we discussed before the podcast, it seems that my understanding of the sort of player that he is is kind of different to, to, to yours. And I would have I would have stacked Rodriguez up in the same sort of pile as I do with players like Mesut Ozil. Um, well, what was interesting is we were also reading that there was a potential uh, that, that Madrid were more interested in getting Christian Eriksen from Tottenham and that maybe there could be some sort of deal involving Rodriguez there. Um, would Rodriguez fit into this system? I mean, forget putting aside whether or not he can, he's already on loan. I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, I don't understand how that works. Um, I, I'm not really sure. I, I, double think, I think the difference... Inception. The, the difference in perception that you and I have of Rodriguez is... is you're not wrong and I'm not wrong. I right. think when Rodriguez first kind of burst onto the scene, particularly in 2014 in the World Cup for With, Colombia. Like, grasshopper arm era. <clears throat> grasshopper arm? Do you not remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, the thing that landed on him. Well, I mean, the enormous yeah, like, sure. man-eating grasshopper. Um, he was he was playing as a 10, or a 10 drifting out into sort of like a left-wing position quite yeah. a bit as well. Um and he absolutely can do that. Yeah. And and I think when he was playing at Bayern, and we looked at him for a video for the Bundesliga, he plays in a couple of different positions, or has done for Bayern. Um, where he most impressed me was actually playing more as an eight for Bayern, as a central midfielder who was kind of dropping in, linking play a lot, moving around, being a passing option, with the ability to play a through ball or to do a long kind of switch. So he's pass, a Ramsey replacement then? I'm not sure he's quite as dynamic as Ramsey. Um, but he's sort of. There's a bit of Xhaka there in terms of the ability to keep the ball moving and play the longer passes. There's definitely a bit of Urzel there in the ability to to play these kind of cute little through balls, although the best through ball of the game was Lukaku's. <laughs> For yeah, the first United goal, but, but no look pass. Um, he probably doesn't have the degree of pressing dynamism that a Ramsey has. Um, yeah, but Bayern have pressed a little bit less this season than they did last season, anyway. Um, 
I mean, I think he's a really, really good player. Sure, he's and, a great, and, and he's a great it, player. You know, I was just, I was a bit, a bit surprised by. I think I, I was sort of sideswiped by the loan loan thing. I think it's confusing. Yeah, no, that's odd. That doesn't make much sense. David Limo uh, says, Hi, um, David. "We've seen uh, what Emery can do with the squad when everyone is fully fit. Twenty-two game unbeaten run. Um, I thought it was eighteen, but hey, twenty-two with injuries to key players. Has that been a key factor? Or I think David thinks it probably has. Also, there's another little bit about Mesut Özil as well." It does seem that Mesut Ozil features quite heavily in um, in most of these comments, which I can understand because, as you as you say, he's kind of described as the marquee player. Uh, there's some questions about Ivan Perisic as well because there were uh, a couple of reports uh, over the weekend that Ivan Perisic has handed in a transfer request at Milan and uh, is open to the idea of moving to Arsenal. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I, I Perisic would presumably come from Inter and play in the Iwobi position. Um, on the left-hand side, you know, he we we saw from Croatia's attacking um, the way that Croatia attacked in the World Cup was was something that Arsenal might look to replicate oh. um, with a player making runs across from the ten position um, with the the wide players getting out and very wide supported by a fullback. So he's probably quite used to. Doing that, I, I'll be honest. I don't really know how Inter are playing um, no. this season, so I don't know how easy a transition it would be. Um, okay. He's probably a bit old as well, a little bit old. Um, Gokul asks, which centre backs should Arsenal go for in the summer? Realistic options, presumably. I mean, at the moment, there's a little bit of a defensive crisis injury-wise, um, particularly with Bayern. He's going to be out for a long time. Torres ACL, which is unfortunate. But as we saw against Manchester City, both uh, Koscielny and Socrates went off with injuries. I think Socrates is out for a month. I'm not sure about Koscielny. I think it might be shorter than that. Um, but, I mean, they need. do they need new centre-backs? Yeah. yeah. I, I would say so. Um, I, I think it depends what kind of centre-back you want. Um, if you want somebody who can relieve some of the long ball passing pressure off Xhaka. Um, you might look at someone like... Um, hey, well, David Luiz is free in the summer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Milos Velkovic, I probably haven't said that right, who's at Werder Bremen. Um, good passer of the ball, defensively sound. Um, there's Upper Meccano, again, I don't know if that's how you pronounce the name. Diot is his first name. He's at RB Leipzig. He's, he's young French kind of, you know, a football manager, Wunderkind. Um, He's very, very solid all round and looks like the sort of player who who will either end up at Bayern Munich or make the transition to a big Premier League side. Um, And uh, random shout is a guy called um, Abdelay Barr, uh, who's at Rayo Varcano. Great. Six foot six and really, really good defending. I like it when they're six foot six. Yeah. Uh, there was one more question that I was just going to uh, scroll back around and see if I could find. I thought it was worth asking. Ah, uh, oh, here it is. Um, nope. Already covered that. Here's another one. Sexual predator. When will I ever stop supporting Arsenal and try to get a job? Well, sexual predator, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. Why would you... Why would you... Why would you call yourself sexual predator? Maybe it's a badge of pride. Or maybe it's an ironic joke. Either way, it's an unfortunate name, isn't it? I, I'm slightly regretting 
reading it out loud. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, listen, that probably... There was a question about Dennis Suarez. Have you got anything to say about Dennis Suarez, or should we just end? I don't really have anything to say. He's good at football. Yeah, maybe we'll make a, a Dennis Suarez video if uh, he does sign for Arsenal. Sure. Sure. Okay, well, that is the end of the podcast. Thank you very much uh, to everyone for listening. We're not sure which team we are going to be focusing on next week. Potentially Chelsea. There's some discussions about Chelsea. We don't know. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I will pop a community post out on uh, YouTube and I'll drop something out on Twitter as well um, when we know which club we're going to be talking about if there's any questions that you have to ask. Incidentally, you can also become a TIFO Football YouTube channel member by paying a small fee <laughs> every month. When you say fee, it sounds so harsh, doesn't it? Does, it does, yeah. You could probably write it off as a charitable donation. Yeah, you could do. And you just, listen, just parting with a part of your gold, a little bit of your gold, parting mm. with your gold, um, which means you can help support the channel and the podcast. And you will also earn access to various cool benefits. Currently, uh, you could be looking at me, look you in the eyes, as I say this on our video podcast, which is available to members on the YouTube channel um, and that we're coming up with new and exciting ideas all the time some of the time we're coming up with new and exciting ideas occasionally occasionally yeah. very uh, infrequently once every three or four weeks just once we've we come up with, a, with a good, good idea then we realise it's not a good idea yeah that's happened once that's happened once yeah but uh, yes thank you very much for listening and we will be back next oh incidentally sorry one oh, more good. thing I mentioned at the end of last week's podcast that Seb was in town and he was going to be interviewing a professional oh, yeah. football commentator yeah, unfortunately the Bath trains from what I understand they were all over the place and Seb couldn't make it so we've had to reschedule that I'm not certain when that's going to be happening but it is upcoming so do listen out for that anyway thank you very much I hope you enjoy your week and uh, au revoir bye bye <laughs>